Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 through 58. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is what we're going to cover tonight. And when we get back together next week, we will start chapter 14. But before we move on to Jesus going to his hometown, that last section we just looked at, I want to finish up and wrap up the last couple of weeks' study when we've been looking at the parables. And let's go look again at chapter 13, verses 51 and 52, because this is a very, very important parable here. Jesus, remember, is explaining the parables to his disciples in private. And he says, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now, did Jesus need to ask these disciples if they understood the parables? I mean, hopefully you understand the answer to that question. The answer is no. He knew whether or not they understood. He knew who was going to believe, who wasn't going to believe. Who knew was, he knew who was going to deny him, who was going to die for him. He knew everything about, there isn't anything he didn't know. So when he asks them, do you understand these things? There's lots of reasons why. And one of them is not that Jesus didn't know. But one of the things I want to bring out as to why Jesus asked them, do you understand these things, is because he's trying to get across to them something we need to understand. We are accountable to do something with what we know. When he says, do you understand these things? And they said, yes. What does he say? Well, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. In other words, what he's saying to them is, okay, if you understand these things, blessed you'll be if you do them. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Take a look at John chapter 13. Go to John chapter 13. All through the scriptures, we see that the Bible says that we're not just to be hearers, but doers. We're going to get to that passage in just a second. But in John 13, verses 12 through 17, we're not going to break down what Jesus was doing here by washing their feet. It's way more than just service. But in verses 12 through 17, it says, And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? Do you call me teacher and Lord, and, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, I'm just going to say something before I go into more scriptures that illustrate this point. One of the biggest problems I see in the church today as I travel the country and speak to different churches, 
I've already been to churches in New Jersey and Clearwater since the last time we were together. One of the biggest problems is we can all answer the right question if we were given a written test. But we're very, very weak on actually putting what we say we know into practice. And that's what we're going to look at. We need to understand it. God says, do you understand this? And if you say, yeah, I went to Bible study. I learned this. Well, are you applying it? Because if you're not applying it, you, you don't get the points, I guess is a good way to put it. And unfortunately, many of us think that we're going to get... Folks, if the church could get better because, through sermons, they'd be healthy. But it's not just going to church that's going to do it or sitting in a Bible study class. The question is, are you applying what it is that God has shown you? Go to Luke chapter 11. Look at verses 27 and 28. Luke 11, verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you, which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Isn't that interesting? Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 47 through 48. And the servant that knew his master's will, but didn't get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And for him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This whole context is simply the one who knew the master's will and didn't do it. Let me just tell you, I'm glad you come on a regular basis to these Bible studies. I love to see this room full and the excitement of people that are here every Tuesday night. But when you stand before God, if you think I went to Bible study every single week is going to stand, it's not going to do you any good. He's going to say, um, what'd you do with it? What'd you do with it? Go to James chapter 1. Look at verses 22 through 25. James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, listen, and perseveres, keeps doing it, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, as Jesus is showing them their accountability, now that they've had their eyes opened, he cautions them also at the same time not to reject the Old Testament teachings now that they're receiving New Testament truth. You hopefully remember from our study of Matthew that what's been going on is Jesus has come and we've been through the Sermon on the Mount and he said, you know what the law says, but I say, and you know the law said don't uh, commit adultery, but I say if you look lustily at a woman, you've committed adultery. And you know the law said don't kill, but I say if you've had hatred towards your brother, you've committed this, uh, this sin and so on. And he's bringing this deeper truth out of the Old Testament and bringing it into the New. And unfortunately, there are many Christians today who think that they just focus on what the New Testament teachings are. And Jesus clearly here says, a wise scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Folks, I want you to I'm going to spend a little time on this tonight. You need to understand that God of the Old Testament is not a different God of the New Testament. It's the same God. 
And the scripture actually says that. Go to Malachi chapter 3. There are preachers even out there today that will say that all we need to do is just focus on the New Testament. And you're going to see tonight that if you do that, you will not be a wise steward or a master who brings out the old as well as the new. In Malachi chapter 3, as God is describing why, to Israel why they haven't been destroyed and why they still exist as a nation, he makes this statement. He said, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What did God say about himself? I don't change. Hebrews 13, verse 8, write it down, look at it later on. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same. He's, there's not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. A lot of Christians think there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. No, he's the same God. He's never changed. Go to Psalm 102. Look at verses 25 through 28. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 28. The scripture says, To God of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Again, does God change? Did he act differently in the Old Testament than he's acting now? You're going to see the answer is no. People would say, well, he's the same God, but he's acting differently now than he did back then. No. You're going to see that it's always been the same. It's always been the same. But before I go there, go to Numbers chapter 23. I wanted to give you one more illustration of the fact that God has said all along, that he doesn't change. Numbers 23, look at verse 19. In Numbers 23, verse 19, the scripture says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and he, will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Now, I want you to hear clearly, the scripture does say in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that in the past he spoke to the prophets, but now he's speaking through his son. But has the message changed? No, the message has not changed, folks. All along, salvation has been by faith in God's provision for man's sin. If you were to look through the book of Romans and get to chapter 4, you'll see how Paul lays out that Abraham was given righteousness by, because of his faith. Back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. And then Paul lays out and said, by the way, when he was given righteousness, was it before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? And Paul lays out that it was before he was circumcised. Chapter 15 is when he believed God and God gave him righteousness. It's not till chapter 17 that he's circumcised and God gave him righteousness before he acted on the acts of the law. The Bible all along has said that salvation has been by faith in God's provision for man's sin. The law was never intended to make man righteous by man's keeping of it. Rather, the law was to show man his sin and his inability to keep God's law and thereby drive him to God for righteousness. Go with me real quick to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to show you what Romans 3 says. And then we're going to go back and show, I'll show you how the Old Testament's been saying that all along. In Romans chapter 3, look at verses 10 through 26. In Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. As it is written, quoting from the Old Testament, None is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They both were pointing to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now look closely what Paul says here, and I'm going to show, show it to you from the Old Testament. He said, all along, the, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be account, held accountable to God. But then later on, it said, that this, the law and the prophets had testified to this righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. Now, people would say, wait a minute, they didn't know who Jesus was in the Old Testament. How could they believe in Jesus? Well, let me say a couple of things to you. All the way along, you'll see, and I'm going to show it to you in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's been saying, God has been telling them, if you believe in my holiness and your sin and my ability to give you righteousness, I will take care of your sin. I will cover your righteousness. You have to believe in me and have faith in me. And my provision for your sin, it's been there all along. Of course, we now on this side of the cross know who it was that provided for their sin, right? But go back to Romans chapter 2 and look at verse 12. It also says in Romans chapter 2 verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified for when Gentiles who do not have the law by, do by nature what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by who? By Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. The Bible says that God's going to use Jesus to judge everyone, Old Testament and New. Why? Because if you go back to, we're not going to have you turn there, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said to Adam and Eve in the garden that a seed, solo by the way, it was singular, a seed of the woman is going to defeat Satan. Yeah, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And all through the Old Testament, God kept giving glimpses of this one who was going to be the righteous one, the servant who was going to come, who was going to take care of sin. Isaiah 53 gives us all these clear pictures of how he was going to be bruised for our iniquities and crushed for our transgressions, how God poured on him the iniquity of us all. All along, the Old Testament had been showing that God was the one who would provide for your sin. You're guilty before God. 
doing sacrifices isn't going to get you right before God. It's putting faith in his provision for your sin. And I want you to see that it's been that way all along. Go with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 51, and look closely at David's prayer when he had sinned with Bathsheba. Psalm 51. David understood it. In Psalm 51, look at verses 1 through 17. This is right after he had been convicted of his sin by God, of his sin with Bathsheba. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. By the way, isn't that what Isaiah says? Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be what? White as wool. I let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Go to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, look at verses 6 through 8. Israel has been accused by God of being guilty before him because of their sins, and this is what they say. They say, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Well, maybe that's not enough. Maybe that's not enough. But will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Maybe that's not enough. 10,000 rivers of oil. Maybe that's not enough. Maybe shall I give the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? As they get all worked up, what do I need to do to get right? What have I got to do? He's shown you. He's told you, O oh man, what is good and what, he does, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Go to Hosea chapter 6. Go to Hosea chapter 6. Look at verse 6. Hosea chapter 6. I know Hosea is a little hard for some of you to find, especially chapter 6. It's right between chapter 5 and chapter 7 of Hosea. So go to chapter 6 and look at verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Do you see it? No, in the Old Testament, God, he made them, they had to keep the law. No. 
The law was sent all along to show them they couldn't do it. And God kept saying, once you get to that point where you realize, I can't keep the law, you're ready to hear the good news. It's always been by faith in my provision for your sins. Turn to me and I'll wash you clean. Ask me and I'll make you right. This has all along been how it's been done. Go to Habakkuk. I know. Habakkuk. See, some of you have one of those new kind of Bibles that you just push buttons and they come up. Habakkuk. We're in chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. And look at verse 4. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. In the middle of this context, look at what he says. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his what? It's been there all along, hasn't it, folks? Actually, God gave me one just now as we were doing this. It's not written in my notes, so I'm going to find it fast. Go with me to the book of Job. I'm pretty sure I know where it is. He's bringing to my mind, so he'll help me find it. I think it's in chapter 33. Yes, it is. It's chapter 33. Start in verse 22. Actually, we'll start in verse 14. Job chapter 33, verse 14. Elihu is speaking and he says, For God does speak in one way and in two, though man, man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. Now if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Folks, that's the gospel. That there be a mediator, one of a thousand, to come and say, deliver him from going down to the pit. Keep him from going to hell. I paid the ransom. Man cries to God and says, I'm a sinner and I haven't done what was right. And God says, I'm going to give you righteousness because of this one. Folks, is there an Old Testament God and a New Testament God? No, you want to be a wise steward, a wise master? Have you heard these things? Please understand, the whole book is the Word of God. Don't just get stuck in the New Testament like many Christians are. You'll miss out on so much. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 24, after he rose from the dead on that first day of the week that he rose from the dead, that evening he was on his way to Emmaus with those two men and he opened their eyes and he then goes and meets with everybody in the upper room and he says to them, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Did you catch what Jesus said? Keep reading the Old Testament, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets and the Psalms. 
because everything written in there must still be fulfilled. Though there was a lot fulfilled in his first coming, there's three times as much prophecy about his second coming. This is why Jesus tells them the wise scribe is the one who brings out both the old and the new. They work together. They bring more insight and understanding. There's no conflict between the Old Testament and the new. By the way, this is also why the New Testament is full of Old Testament quotes to explain how it all fits together. Have you all noticed that? Did you catch what was going on in Romans 3 when we were reading? Did you notice it was kind of written a little bit different and the headings were a little bit different? That's because it was all quotes from the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is mostly quotes from the Old Testament. All through the Bible, the New Testament writers were just showing this is what it meant. This is what it's pointing to. And so, folks, please understand. If you say, I understand. I went to Bible study. I learned. Great. Are you applying it? And at the same time, the whole book. Read the whole book. Don't just live in the new. All right, now let's go into chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. And I think we have time. In chapter 13, verse 53, and when Jesus had finished these parables, we're back in Matthew. He went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. As Jesus goes to his hometown and begins to teach in the synagogue there in Nazareth, the people who knew him, but didn't really know him, were amazed at his wisdom and the amazing miracles that he was doing, but they rejected him because he hadn't been to school to be trained as a rabbi. Where did he get this wisdom? I mean, he's just a carpenter. But they didn't realize that he had come from God, and they didn't recognize that the Father God was empowering him. Real quick, I want you to see that his own family didn't understand, and his own disciples didn't understand. Go to John chapter 7. What they didn't understand is that he had come from God and that God the Father was empowering him. In John 7, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths, that's the tabernacles, was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. So his own brothers, Mary even struggled a little bit. She pondered these things in her heart. We saw earlier in our study when she went with the brothers to go get him out of the house, they thought he was out of his mind. They didn't fully understand. They knew there was something different about him. But he wasn't acting the way they thought he should, and they didn't understand, but neither did his disciples. I mean, we're looking at how the people of his hometown rejected him and, and, and didn't want anything to do with him, but his own disciples had trouble too. Go to John chapter 14. Look at verses 8 through 11. Even after being with Jesus for three years, they still struggled with this. In John chapter 14, starting in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 
Believe, that I, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So here we see even the disciples still thought he was just a guy. They didn't understand. Jesus, you keep talking about your Father. Show us the Father. We want to see the Father. And he says, still don't get it, do you? I and the Father are one. He'd already said that back in John chapter 8. So what I think God wants us to do tonight is this. This passage doesn't say that he could do no mighty works there, but that simply he could not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. Look again. It says there in, uh, in verse 30, uh, sorry, 58 of Matthew 13. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Go to Mark chapter 6. I want to pull out Mark's account of the same episode, and we'll get a little bit more from Mark's account as well. Go to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So you see, he has been doing mighty works. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And he could, not do, mighty work, could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages and teaching. So he did some, but he didn't do any big stuff. Now, I'm going to go somewhere tonight that may surprise you. And, I'm, and, and, and I think by the time we get going, you're going to be, I'm glad he decided to do this. But we're not going to take a look at the people of Jesus' day's rejection of him. We're not going to study about how they didn't believe and they missed out on the mighty works. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Before we go on to chapter 14 next week, how much have you missed out on because you haven't believed in Jesus' available power in your life? That's where we're going to go tonight in the time that we have left. We're going to go down a road that makes some people uncomfortable. But I'm going to talk to you tonight about scriptures that talk about the fact that God will do mighty, powerful things in our lives. Some of us are afraid of that because there's wacky preachers and teachers out there that take them to an unbiblical realm where all of a sudden you get to be God and you tell God what he has to do. And if you claim it, he has to do it. We're not going to go there. But at the same time, as Vance Habner said years ago, we're so afraid of going out on a limb spiritually, we don't even climb the tree anymore. And I want you to understand, tonight in the time we have left, I'm going to challenge you, hopefully the Spirit of God and God's Word will challenge you, to begin to really move into a realm that says, Lord, what promises do you have that are available to me that I'm missing out on because of my unbelief? See, we could sit here and talk about how they didn't believe and they missed out. No, I, I want to get to what am I missing out on because of my unbelief. I've seen God do cool stuff in my life, but let me ask you this. You might have even seen God do some cool stuff in your life, but... Are there mighty works that you've missed out on because of your unbelief? Without building a false theology that makes us God and the true God our puppet, we must acknowledge that Scripture does teach that we miss out on much that God has for us, our desires or our desires to do through us because of unbelief. Let's take a look at what the Scripture has to say about that. Go to Mark chapter, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 17. Look at verses 19 through 21. I'm going to take you through some Scriptures that talk about this. There's scriptures that show how there's more that could be accomplished in our lives that God wants to accomplish, but we miss out on it 
for many different reasons, and we're going to get into that tonight. In Matthew 17, look at verses 19 through 21. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Remember, these are the same disciples who had been sent out by Jesus to go cast out demons and they had been able to do it. They even were so excited, they came back and said, even the demons respond to us in your name. And he said, relax, don't get so excited about that. Just be glad your name's written in the book of life. But the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast it out? This one individual demon. And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. That scares some of us, and we just leave it alone. I want to challenge you to wade into the water a little bit tonight. Let God take you scripturally into a realm that he has for some of us that are willing to move into what he wants for us because we believe. Go to John chapter 14, the section where we just were, where Jesus has said to his disciples, you don't understand that the Father's in me and I'm in the Father? Go to John 14 and start in verse 10 in the section we were just in. We're going to read chapter 14, verses 10 through 14. Jesus said, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son." If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I know how you're feeling. Boy, that sounds really good. And it's scary. Yes. But I'm telling you, stick with me. The Bible teaches us what this is talking about. There's so much more. I, 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 I can honestly tell you, my wife would be able to tell you, our kids would be able to tell you, God has been teaching us this as we have learned to believe. Now, again, please hear me. We're not going to turn into a name it and claim it theology or if, if I believe it strongly enough, God has to do it. You're going to see, there's, you'll notice there are some caveats in these promises. If you ask in my name, we're going to deal with what that means. But he also says, you haven't asked in my name. Ask in my name. You'll do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And let me just ask you real quick. Jesus at that time, did he not say... I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. By the way, does anybody here have that same relationship right now? Man, any hands? I do. Remember John chapter 14? Look at verse 20. He talks about how the Spirit's going to be with you, going to be in you. And look at verse 20. In that day you will know that I'm in my Father and you're in me and I'm in you. When we get indwelt by God, when we become sealed by the Spirit of God, we're baptized in the Spirit. When God comes to indwell us, the same relationship that Jesus had when He was in the world, we have now. We're in Jesus, who's in the Father, and Jesus is in us, and the Father's in us. Folks, as Jesus walked around in this world, and He knew what the Father was saying, He knew what the Father was doing, He knew when the Father said to heal, and when the Father said not to heal. He knew when the Father said to do something, and when not to do something. But whenever the Father spoke, He believed that the Father had spoken and he spoke it and it happened and that is available I believe according to the scriptures for Christians still today but again don't take it to 
I'm God now, and whatever I say, he has to do. There are those out there that say that, and, 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 and they'll mess you up. I know, I know many people say, um, uh, I know I'm not going to die because I have enough faith. This cancer is going to be gone. I've rebuked this cancer, and I've been to all their funerals. No, no, no. I'm not talking a theology that says you get to believe it and God has to do it. But I want to say to you, we could spend all the rest of our time tonight talking about how the people of his day didn't get to see many mighty works because of their unbelief. Are there things God wants for you that you're missing out on? Go to James chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 3. James, writing to believers, says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you don't have, why? Because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive, why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, there are things that you don't have, because you haven't asked. There are things you want, and you're trying to make it all happen yourself. You're con coveting or conniving and trying to manipulate. That's why Just the Preacher goes out of its way. We don't ask for money. We give away everything. I never call a church and say, hey, I'll be in your area. Can I speak while I'm in your area? And for 15 years, God has filled my calendar like you wouldn't believe, and he's provided for us financially like you wouldn't believe. And we continue to just say, you know what? If it's of God, he's going to do it, and we just trust him. Because he loves to show off on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And we don't try to make it happen. We don't try to finagle. We don't try to help God out. We believe that if God's going to do this ministry, he's going to do the ministry. And we're going to go wherever he tells us to go. And whenever he wants us to go, he'll open the door. And he has. At the same time, he then goes and says, some of you are asking. But the answer is no. Because your heart's not in the right place to receive it yet. You want it for your reasons, not for the reasons I want to give it to you. Did you catch that? There are things that you're asking for that God wants to give to you. But the reason why he wants to give it to you isn't lining up with why you're asking. Let's just use this illustration. Let's say that you want to give your kid a car. And the reason why you want to give your kid a car is because you know your kid needs a job and a car will help them get to that job. And you want to bless your kid with a car to get to the job. But the kid says, I'd sure like a car because I want to go run around with my buds. You ever thought about a job? Nah. If we had a car, though, we could just all chip in our money together and travel. Do you think that parent's going to give the kid a car? No. Does the father want to give the kid a car? Sure. But the reason the kid's asking for the car and the reason why the father wants to give the car aren't in line, and the father's not going to bless with the car. But if you, well, we'll get there. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Look at verses 14 and 15. He's just said in verse 13, one of the most awesome Bible verses in the Bible, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence, verse 14, that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Did you catch it? 
if we ask anything according to God's will, understand this, he heard you. And if you know he's heard you, and it's in accordance with his will, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Now, you, again, don't let your flesh run crazy with this. Also, don't live a fatalistic, weak life of not asking God to do mighty works in your life because of unbelief. Some of you, God wants you to begin asking for things, and your thinking is, well, he's just going to say no. Well, I, you've, my kids and my wife have always heard me say this to people wherever I go. The answer is always no if you never ask. Right? So lots of times I'll just jokingly say, hey, can I have that for free? And you'd be amazed how many times someone has handed it to me for free. And I was joking. I had my wallet in my hand. I was just, and they're like, no, we feel like doing it. Okay, thank you. I'll put the wallet back in my pocket. We were at Disney the other day with my wife. She bought me Disney passes for our Christmas present because she loves me. And I love Disney. <laughs> and we were buying a gift for my daughter for her birthday, which isn't until April. But we gave it to her anyway because we can't wait to give it to her. And so we already gave it to her. Plus, we spent a whole $6 on it. But I went up to the lady at the register at Disney and said, because we have Disney passes, I said, you know, with our Disney passes, I heard we get a 90% discount. The lady, of course, laughed and said, no, it's only 10%. But she goes, that was pretty nice of you to, to try. I'm like, you never know. Folks, don't be afraid to ask, but let God be God. I, he wants you first to just begin to understand that his heart is for you. Ask. Ask. Some of you are missing out on things that you never even thought to ask. Oh, but don't be in a hurry, because, well, I asked, and he said no. Hey, listen, if he says no, the answer is no, because it's the best, and you have to trust him. But don't, because he says no, quit asking. Look at what the scripture says of the prerequisites and requirements of, for, for prayers that accomplish much. First and foremost, I want you to hear this. Prayers that accomplish much, the, the requirements are righteous living and obedience. All right? Obedience to God's word and no unconfessed sin. Go to James chapter 5 and look at verses 16 and 17. He says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. By the way, um, he then prayed again and, and the Lord had it rain. Let me ask you a quick question about those of you that know that story. Um, did Elijah pray that it wouldn't rain for three years before God said it wasn't going to rain or after God said it wasn't going to rain? It was after. God had already told him. And that's why he said, thus says the Lord, it, well, there won't be any more rain, any rain on this land except at my word. He had already heard from God what God wanted. He prayed that prayer, and God heard him, and the prayer was answered. He didn't pray that it wouldn't rain, and then God said, okay, good idea, and I'll do what you say. Do you understand? He knew what the fathers had said. He prayed it, and it happened. There's a big difference. By the way, sounds kind of important that we know what God's saying in then, doesn't it? See, faith can't begin unless God's spoken. A lot of people out there are teaching that faith is just believing something. No, no, no. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
If you walked up to someone on the street today and you said, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And they'd say, well, I'm just going to have faith that that's going to work out. You would say, that's not faith. Faith has to be believing in what God has said. God said there's only one way for you to get right before him and only one way that you can go to heaven, and that's through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Any other way won't get you there. I don't care how much, quote, unquote, faith you have. All these other people that have faith in their, quote, unquote, God's small g, are they going to heaven? But they have faith, Jim. You ever hear people talking that way? No, they don't have faith according to the biblical definition. Faith only begins once God has spoken. And you put your faith in what he said. That's why it's important to know what he said. But you also have to be living righteously. Write this one down. Look at it later on. Psalm 66 verse 18 says this. If I treasured sin in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I treasure sin in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I'm about to go from preaching to meddling. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I'm going to be doing a marriage retreat coming up in a couple of weekends over at LifePoint, and we're going to deal with some of this stuff. But go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. It says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you see that? If you as a husband are not treating your wife with honor and reverence and respect the way God wants you to, your prayers are being hindered because of your unrighteousness, your disobedience. Actually, that's if you go back to the book of Malachi, you'll see in chapter 2 where God says to the nation of Israel, you cover the Lord's altar with your tears and you wonder why he's not answering. It's because you've broken faith with the wife of your youth. You've divorced her and you treated the marriage relationship in a way that I never designed and you went against my plan. Oh, remember, he's a God that if we come to him and say, I've sinned and I've done what was not right, would you please wash me? He will. But don't just think it's no big deal. I'll just kind of just do better from now on. No, some of you need to understand that if there's unconfessed sin, you need to confess it and get it washed. It affects our prayers. John chapter 15, look at verse 7. John chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says this. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. You see it? If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Go to 1 John chapter 3. Look at verses 19 through 22. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Look closely at that. We'll know we're of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him, because whenever our hearts condemn us, God's greater than our heart. He knows everything. So in other words, if we do feel convicted, God knows. 
And if we ask, he'll wash us clean. If you are in a place where your heart's not condemning you, you're confessed up, if you will, ask whatever you wish. Now, how are we to ask, though? First, we have to be living righteous. That's a, that's a caveat. But there's also a second part. We have to ask for what is in accordance with his will, and as we already saw, they're together in his name. Remember, we saw earlier, whoever believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You see, there are a lot of people that say they believe in Jesus. They're not saved. Just saying, I believe in Jesus doesn't mean you're saved. You just have to believe in the name of the only Son of God. Who is the name? What does it mean by the name of the Son of God? Well, it is the fact that He is God Himself. He's the only God. He's part of the Trinity. He took on flesh. He lived without sin. He rose from the dead. And if you believe in that Jesus, that's His name, you'll be saved. You understand? If you just believe in the Jesus you've created, that's not believing in His name. If you ask God... For whatever you want, for what you want, it's not asking in His name. He is a loving God. He's a God who wants to bless. He wants to give. He is a God who does still heal. But sometimes when He says no, it's best. And when His children really understand this and ask continually with a heart that says, You're God and I'm not. You're Daddy. I'm the kid. But you've taught me to ask. And I'm going to ask. Because I believe you're good, and if this is for me, you'll give it. And if it's in your will, I want it. Those are the kind of prayers that God responds to. And even when he says no, he does it in a way that lets you know, you know what, he said no, but it's going to be okay. Because my father proves that he loves me. Go to first, you're in 1 John chapter 3. Go to 1 John chapter two, to 5, I'm sorry. 1 John 5, look at verses 14 and 15. We just saw it, but I want to see it again. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Remember James chapter 4, verse 3? It says you don't have because you don't ask. And then you don't receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly. Because you want to spend it for what you want. Ask for what he wants, but don't be afraid to say, I'd like this too. By the way, Jesus did not pray in the garden Father, whatever you want. I hear too many Christians saying, I just want whatever God wants. I just want the will of God. Jesus' prayer was, Father, here's what I want. If there's any way you can remove this cup from me, please do it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Let me ask you a quick question. Did he stop praying right there? What did he keep praying? The same thing. Three times. Father, if the Bible says he asked again the same thing. If there's any way you can remove this cup, I'm for it. Nevertheless, I lay my will down. Not my will be done, but yours. And he did it three times. We see Paul doing the same thing in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You can look at it later on. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul had this thorn in his flesh, and we don't know what it was, and it doesn't matter. But he had this thorn in his flesh, and he begged God three times. And by the way, do you think Paul knew how to hear God and how to pray? Paul was the guy who would say, hey, God's just told me if no one leaves the ship, everybody that's on the ship will survive. God, an angel of the Lord, just came and spoke to me and told me that I'm going to preach in Rome. And then later on, right after that shipwreck, they get to the island. He's helping gather sticks. And as he's gathering sticks for the fire, there was a viper in there, and it fastened on his hand. But it's one thing to be bitten by a snake. It's another one to have it fastened on your hand. That means he's draining his juice, all right? 
But the Bible says that all Paul did was just shake it off into the fire. And he went right back about his business. Now, most of us would go, ah! I thought I was going to Rome. I guess I'm not going to Rome. <laughs> Paul said, you know what? That could probably kill a guy. But God's already told me that I'm going to Rome. Therefore, I must not be dying of this. And he shook the serpent off into the fire. Boy, boy, we need to do that. The Bible says resist the devil. Resist the devil. Submit ourselves first, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Why did Paul shake the snake off and not run for a, a Band-Aid or, or a kit? Because God had already told him, you're going to Rome. This isn't going to kill me. It may look like it. Oh, yes, I know that between when God told me I'm going to preach in Rome, I've been through a shipwreck and I've been bitten by a snake but I'm still going to Rome. Did you hear me? Some of you have heard God make a promise to you, but between the promise and the fulfillment, you've gone through a shipwreck or you've been bitten by the snake and you all quit. Well, I thought God said he was going to do this. Did he say he's going to do it tomorrow? Well, no. I just assumed. Folks, God walks us through stuff. Are we going to believe what he said? Are we going to keep moving forward in faith? Are we going to move forward in faith in what he has promised? Or are we going to try to fix it ourselves and make it work out? Oh, he looks to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And if he's made you a promise in his word, or he's given you a promise in your spirit, and you've had a shipwreck or a snake bite between the, the two, don't give up on what he said. The book of James actually says that when you ask, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives it generously to all without finding fault. But whoever asks, ask to ask, believing, not doubting. The person who doubts is like a wave tossed by the wind. That person should never expect to receive anything, the Bible says. So the question is, what has he said? What's in his word that's a promise? What has he said to you? Begin asking God. Begin asking God. Believe that you hear that he hears, sorry, you when you're obedient and trusting in him and living for his glory and not yours. Know also, and we're going to close with this tonight, know that he's good, know that he loves you, and pray in faith that his way is best, but ask, ask. He wants you to. Go to Psalm 34. I, I just can't help but show you it's been in the Old Testament too, not just the New Testament. He's the same God. Look at Psalm 34. Look at verses 8 through 18. Psalm 34, verse 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him, what? Have no what? Well, wait a minute. Is that a promise? It's in his word. Those who fear him have no lack. Wait, hang on for a second. Paul himself even said, I know what it is to have plenty, and I know what it is to be in need. And I've learned the secret of all things. It's Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The secret of being content is knowing that even though it appears that you have lack, you don't. Because God loves to show off. And so even though it looks like the cupboard's empty, it isn't. I don't know about you, Jim. I'm looking at an empty cupboard. Let me tell you a story real quick. Years ago, when my wife and I were first married, our combined income, our first year of marriage, was less than $6,000. It was in 1990, coming up on 30 years. One Wednesday night, 
It was Wednesday night prayer service at our church as associate pastor of a big church in New Orleans, and the gymnasium was also the kitchen. And so on Wednesday nights, the youth would have the gym, and so they didn't have a Wednesday night supper. And so on Wednesday nights, she and I would eat in our trailer in the seminary uh, trailer park, and then we'd drive across town to Kenner, to the, where the church was, and we'd go to prayer meeting. And that night, as we sat down in our little trailer, we literally had $4 in our checking account, just enough gas to get to church and back, and all we had in our trailer was one can of Spam and a box of macaroni and cheese, and there was nothing else. I mean, no milk, nothing. Freezer was empty. Cupboards were absolutely empty. And we took that can of Spam, cut it up into little chunks, mixed it up with the macaroni and cheese. By the way, macaroni and cheese without milk, not great. But you mix it with water, you can make it work. And we mixed it with the Spam and the, macro- the water and the macaroni and cheese, and that was our dinner. And we sat down and we prayed, and we said, Lord, this is all we have. We need you to provide. We had no idea how we we're going to pay a bill. We didn't know where any money was coming from. We we're seminary students, and we finished that meal. We drove to church. Prayer meeting gets over, and a man named Richard Bird came up to me. He was a Sunday school teacher. He had a big Sunday school class, and he, Richard said, Jim, did you bring your truck with you tonight? I'm like, yeah, it's the only car I got. He goes, well, come over to my house. Our, our uh, Sunday school class bought you a present, and you need your truck. I'm thinking, what kind of a big present is this? I need my truck. So we drive, Becky and I drive over to his house. He opens his front door, and literally his living room was right there, wall to wall on his whole living room floor were grocery bags, brown bags of groceries. As far as you could see, the floor was covered. It literally filled the back of our pickup truck. And we drove home that night, and the freezer was full, the cupboards were full, the fridge was full. I mean, literally went from nothing. It looked like we had lack, but we didn't. And what hit us later that night was this. We did the math. And while we were praying over our last meal, those groceries were already sitting on his living room floor. He had already provided before we even asked. Guess what he was waiting for us to do? Ask. He loves you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions are going to suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, and he delivers them, what? Out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Folks, he loves you. He's good. In Luke chapter 11, he says, ask and you will, what? Receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. How much have you and I missed out on? How much have you and I missed out on because of our unbelief? I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.